Hi, and welcome to the A16Z podcast. I'm Doss, and this episode is Boss Talk with A16Z co-founder Ben Horowitz and Databricks CEO Ollie Godsey, all about leadership and management. Their conversation originally took place on social audio app Clubhouse, where they host a live chat every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific. You can find more of their and other conversations on our separate feed, A16Z Live. Here, though, we're sharing the second installment of their show. In it, Ben and Ali cover Conway's law and shipping your org chart, making the transition from being a boss to a boss of bosses, Silicon Valley post-pandemic, and more. Okay, so today on Boss Talk, we've got a, we're going to have a special beginning because um, many of you know my background because I wrote a book which went through my whole background, uh, but you might not know Ali's background as well, and his is even more interesting. And I think that it's it's really relevant because you know when you get into these discussions about how to run an organization and and how to make decisions and all these things. They're all very situational. There is no kind of one way to do any of it. And it's really important that you know where people are coming from uh, to, to know what to do with what they're saying. So this is going to be a kind of a, a very kind of important basis for the show. So Ali, could you What's take up? us back to Iran? And your uncle was uh, one of the founders of OPEC. Yeah, wow! I didn't, I didn't even know you remember that. Uh, yeah, 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 he was. Yeah, yeah, he was. Uh, you know, uh, one of the like five uh, oil directors, and um, you know, they, uh, you know, that part of the family had it well. Um, uh, but actually, not so much on my parents' side. They were sort of uh, in the opposition, and mm-hmm. I was born right around the revolution. And you know, pretty common. You know, 1979. There was, you know, the right. Ayatollahs took over. Um, yes, and, you know, and the, the Shah, the Shah, the, the Shah was kind of exiled by, uh, you know, with help of the United States. Interestingly, yeah, yeah, he came over here, and you know, soon died in cancer. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, the Mullahs took over. Uh, my parents were in opposition, and actually, what was interesting is that they around that time the Iran Iraq War started. Mm-hmm. Um, which put the country in a really tense situation because suddenly, like, you know, there was this revolution, these people have taken over the country, but they, you know, they're just scrambling to figure out how to run the country, the, the mullahs. Uh, yeah. And suddenly they're being attacked uh, by this foreign nation. Uh, so, um, you know, so it, it was sort of take no hostages kind of situation, uh, especially when uh, the Iraqis started bombarding uh, Tehran, which was where I was uh, uh, living at the time as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the aerial attack started against the sort of capital of Iran. Uh, you know, everything just changed, right? It was like sort of uh, suddenly the government was sort of like, you know, we're we're not messing around. Like this is wartime. Um, and and you, you, your family ended up being, you know, one of those that uh, was not going to be a hostage. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, look. So first of all, it's like the war is going on in the background. So like, you know, every now and then, you know, at, at nighttime, um, the sirens go off. So you hear this like mm-hmm. sound. And then, you know, our house, we were actually overlooking all of Tehran. So when you could see yeah. the city and it's kind of interesting, they actually shut off all the, all the sort of electricity in the whole city when the bombardment starts so that the oh, fighter wow. jets can't find the, find the houses. Uh, you know, and uh, and then you know your parents scramble, they freak out, they tell the kids to get under the tables, and um, 
you know, and they turn on candles and they turn tune in on the radio to see what's going on. And, you know, and they'll tell you like, you know, which locations are being attacked. And, you know, I, quite a few times, actually, we had bombardment in our neighborhood. One night, actually, I remember, uh, it felt like they actually hit our building. I felt like, like the whole building just collapsed. Uh, but no, they didn't. Boy. It was actually, yeah, yeah, it was actually a building, you know, further down in the block. And you were but a kid, just, you were like five, and you remember that, yeah? Yeah, four or five. You remember very yeah, clearly. Yeah. The thing you remember very clearly is your parents were always super cool and calm, just <laughs> freaking out, like crying, screaming, running around, like losing their shit. Um, and uh, yeah, so windows smashed. I felt like they hit our building, but they actually didn't. It was like a building yeah. next door. Uh, next day, we walked outside. The whole building had just collapsed, the, the one next to our house. Um, yeah, I, to me, I, I thought it's a skyscraper, but probably I was a little kid. So it was probably just a three-story building or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's collapsed. You have all these people like crying. Uh, you know, there are all these women crying. You know, I, I remember I asked uh, my dad, you know, why are they crying? And he said, uh, you know, they lost their, their sons, you know, and they're sitting there crying and there's rumbles and so on. So that's going on in the background. So as a result of this, the government started sort of hitting back on any opposition that was in the country, right? You know, because they were not messing around. This was yeah. wartime. Uh, and my parents happened to be in opposition. Uh, so, um, you know, so very suddenly, you know, uh, the going got rough kind of uh, against any opposition <laughs> group. <laughs> so when you say the going got rough, what happened? Well, I mean, like pretty much anyone that's in the opposition, they would capture, right? And mm -hmm. either jail or kill or, you know, they would disappear. Yeah. So um, so basically one day, one of these, so they had this, you know, pretty ghetto uh, techniques back in the day where they would sort of call each other to see if, you know, everybody answers the phone. If they do, you know, you're fine. Mm -hmm. If you're not, you've been, they assume you've been captured. Mm -hmm. uh, so if someone doesn't answer the phone, you just assume that they've been captured. And you assume that they won't tell anyone anything for 24 hours. So you'll... You assume you're safe for 24 hours, but after 24 hours, it's kind of, you know, anything goes, anyone can say anything. So you're no longer your location, nothing is safe. Um, so this one woman didn't answer the phone call at 5 p.m. Uh, one day. Yeah. And, and you know, my parents were like, that's it. We gotta, we gotta get out. Like we gotta leave <laughs> right now. Yeah, get out of Dallas, wow. Yeah, so they said, you know, we, so, you know, 24 hours to get out of the country. Um, I remember they had a, kind of event not event they sort of told their friends come over take whatever you see in the mm -hmm. house because we're like we're just leaving mm -hmm. and you know and uh and you know they got the paperwork and so on and the next day we were on a flight out of the country uh so just like that it's uh you know it's uh that whole kind of world you live in is uh is behind you and you're in a new country amazing and then tell me about the flight because there, there there was something uh i, I remember a, a thing with with makeup on the flight or something. <laughs> you have a good yeah. number. You, you have a yeah. good number. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is, so, so you get on this flight, uh, all the women have, you know, it's, it's, it's Islamic Republic, right? So all the women have like, you know, they have their uh, headscarf on and all that. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and then they announce suddenly like, you know, that we've left Iranian, you know, airspace at some mm -hmm. point. Right. And immediately you see all the women in the airplane, you know, <laughs> take their headscarves on pull out their mirrors and start putting on lipstick and make makeup, you know, uh, like, you know, all together, like it's as if it's like synchronized, you know, uh, yeah, it's incredible. So, you know, so that was, that was it. And, you know, actually my uncle stayed behind and said, there's nothing. And, you know, yeah. eventually he got, you know, captured and killed. Um, yeah, so it was, it was terrible. a serious, we, we actually had to leave and it was actually wise of my parents to actually act on that. Um, 
So, you know, so suddenly we were in Sweden. And then you landed in Sweden. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and not in the nice neighborhood of Sweden. Yeah, I mean, first of all, beggars can't be choosers. So, like, my parents yeah. wanted to end up in the United States. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you're, you just, you know, you have 24 hours, you, you go wherever you can get in. Yeah. Uh, so, I ended up in Sweden. And actually, initially, we didn't actually have, I haven't actually told you this, but initially, yeah. since they didn't have that much money with them, because they just lost everything. Yeah. Um, they started by just uh, living in these um, dorms. So it was like these dorms mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, shared kitchen. And there's like, you know, a bunch of 18-year-olds running around in college. Yeah. Uh, and then there's this family with two kids, <laughs> you know, really, <laughs> really suspect, you know, uh, with, with, you know, two little kids and, you know, and, uh, you know, dad's got a big mustache. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there. So, you know, that's how we started. You know, we left. I think we lived for a month or two like that. They, they evicted us eventually, right? They're like, you know, you're yeah. not students. You can't live here. You know, get out of here. Uh, so then we found another dorm. So we moved into another dorm. And uh, so we lived there for a little while. I think I, uh, I managed to sort of uh, um, destroy their, their communal TV in the, in the common, <laughs> common room there. So, yeah. so we got evicted again. Uh, so we kept giving, getting evicted for like two years like, like this. And uh, eventually they found us a place uh, in, uh, you know, in the suburbs. And in Sweden, the way it works is in the suburbs, at least many of the suburbs, are, that's, those are uh, not so good neighborhoods. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it, it's funny. So this was confirmed by um, QD3, who's Quincy Jones's son, who also grew up in Sweden. He was like, "Oh yeah, Ali grew up in the bad neighborhood." <laughs> yeah, actually, it turns out we were yeah. very close. Actually, we yeah. were not far away from each other, though we were probably yeah. five years apart. But uh, yeah, so you end up going to school there, and it's like so, suddenly it's completely different, right? So I went from, yeah. you know, in Iran, I was in private schools, and you know. Uh, you know, top end, posh, here you're suddenly in a ghetto, you know, yeah. and, you know, uh, people are bringing knives to school and there's knife fights and there's police and all that. Um, so it's sort of, you know, it's a big shock to the system. Like all the stuff that worked back over there, the rules have completely changed now. It's, you know, you don't even speak the language. So, you know, you have to learn to adapt to that. Um, so that's how kind of the, the transition happened to screen. And then there was the, uh, you know, kind of a racism as well, where what they call you black tops. Um, blackheads. Because, yeah, blackheads, blackheads, yes. Yeah, yeah. In, in Sweden, they had this expression, uh, blackheads, for, for people. I mean, you know, because most people are blonde. So, yeah. you know, the immigrants, many of the immigrants came actually from Turkey or from yeah. other parts of the world. They, you know, had right. black hair. So they were called blackheads. Um, and, you know, all the immigrants live in these suburbs. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the nice neighborhoods are like in town or other places. Um, so, you know, there's like heavy tension. It's actually not very dissimilar from here in the United States where, you know, those of us who are out there in the ghetto kind of, there was like sort of us versus them. Uh, mm -hmm. You felt that you really not, you're never really part of society. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, police you brutality. Like, yeah. You know, there's like, you know, you don't trust the police. Um, you don't, um, uh, you know, you know, you're not going to get a job, you know, it's not going to be fair, you know, it's like sort of, there's this whole, and you know, a lot of it is also like, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's, a lot of it is true. A lot of it is also self-inflicted because, you know, you grew up there and, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so, um, so yeah, that was, that was the sort of probably my uh, first um, 10 years of my life uh, in Sweden. Yeah. No, amazing. And then, I mean, what, a crazy story. So you, you got into the technical university there. 
you somehow made it here <laughs> to Berkeley. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, so yeah. you know, eventually got into computers. Eventually got in, you know, yeah. and you know, eventually, you know, was able to get into a, you know PhD program and you know just geek out on computers and you know you kind of uh, you know soon find yourself in a completely different world that's very different from um, you know the the suburbs you grew up in um, yeah. and different type of people and you know they have different again they have a different value system and they're doing other things and you learn from them and you adapt to that environment uh, and suddenly you're an academic suddenly you're an academic and then just as suddenly you're CEO of a company. Yeah, I mean, it didn't happen like that overnight, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, there are as no you, overnight you know, successes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, as you know, I mean, you, you saw the Databricks uh, story from the very beginning. Uh, yes. But yeah, I mean, we we were at, uh, you know, UC Berkeley and, uh, and we were lucky because Silicon Valley's four tech companies were giving a lot of funding to UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. uh, mostly because they wanted to hire the talent. Yeah. And so we got to see the projects they were working on. And uh, we saw that they were doing amazing things, uh, you know, things that were very, very different from what the rest of enterprises or even people in academia were doing. They were basically, mm-hmm. they figured out, they had just figured out how you could take classic machine learning AI algorithms from the 70s that everyone knew uh, mm-hmm. were broken and they don't work. I mean, everyone in yeah. academia knew they don't work. <laughs> right. And they, they could, you know, couldn't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, from the 70s. And it turned out that if you took massive amounts of data, orders of magnitude more data and through that, you know, modern hardware, those crappy algorithms that don't work, they become superhuman and they actually can do better than even humans on a lot of tasks. Yeah. Uh, and we were kind of blown away by this. So, uh, you know, so as Berkeley hippies, we wanted to democratize this. And so we want to open source it, give it away to the world and, you know, change the world with open source. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the world was not very receptive, you know, there's sort of, at that time, it was all about Hadoop and, you know, other technologies. So they were not mm-hmm. interested at all in what we were doing. Yeah. So uh, 2013 was sort of when we were, 2012 actually was when we released that we had these ideas that maybe we should maybe do something with it. And you came along. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I remember you just said, hey, you guys are just idiots. Uh, <laughs> you know, this, this thing won't take off by itself. You have to do it. Uh, you know, uh, so, so you got to either start a company and be serious about it and do it. Yeah. Uh, or it's not going to happen by itself. Like, you know, you just, you know, you guys messing around in academia, UC Berkeley, that's like, that's all nice and dandy, but it's going to change. <laughs> well, the, you know. <laughs> I, I, I was also from Berkeley, so I knew what that was about. Yeah. So you were like, you know, that's all nice and dandy, but if you want to actually have impact, uh, we got to do this. And I think we were like, okay, so give us some seed funding, give us like a hundred K and we'll do this. And, um, and you were like, no, 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 I, I'm going to be on your board. And we were yeah. like, okay, give us 100K and uh, sit on our board. <laughs> They're like, no, no, you don't understand. <laughs> if I'm going to spend my time on this, I, you know, I have to ask him in the game. So, uh, so first investment was $14 million there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And we're off to the races. I actually remember when we got the $14 million in the bank account, it said 14, 000, 000. And all the co-founders were just looking at it and they were like, wow, that's, you know. <laughs> That's a lot of money. And then someone said, hey, if we put it in a bank account, uh, how much interest will we get from this? <laughs> you know, and someone said, wow, that would pay us salaries. We could just put it in the bank and like just, you know. Um, so that's how it started. So you're the one that kind of nudged us and said, you got to do this. If you want to really, you know, if you want to really uh, make an impact, uh, you know, go big. 
Yeah, no, I remember we we had to wait to uh, incorporate the company because everybody had to like finish um, their PhD and do their right. dissertation or whatever. You know, they're right. all exams. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, they were, you know, yeah. they were taking six months off here and there to finish the PhDs. That is true. Uh, yeah, that so, continued. so now that, you know, you, you, you built the company to a tremendous size, over 2,000 employees, um, and you've seen kind of... <clears throat> you know, managers in your own company, you've seen other CEOs in the industry. What do you feel like, you know, the advantages that you got from your very, very unusual background, you know, being a refugee, kind of showing up in Sweden, being in the hood, being the kind of oppressed member of society, and then and then kind of finding yourself on the other side? Like, what does that bring you that, you know, maybe somebody who went to Exeter Academy and then, you know, went to Harvard or something like that? Uh, doesn't you know would struggle with yeah I mean I don't know they might be able to do it as well but I think what was valuable for me was the change of environment all the time uh, you know the sudden change and mm-hmm. you know you go from one environment to another where the value system might be different and you know you know in this particular school that you're in now you know it's not about who wins the fist fight necessarily suddenly so you're like you're confused you're like wait wait yeah. uh, you know I'm good at fist fighting and they're like no that gets you in trouble like you know so co- constantly changing the environment on you, I think, uh, helps you understand different people's perspectives and mm-hmm. lets you kind of cross culture barriers inside the organization. Because let's face it, every organization, there's like different cultures within your company. Can yeah. you transcend them? Can you empathize with them? Can you understand their perspective? Can you even maybe, you know, camouflage yourself to speak their language? And, you know, so they feel like you represent them and you're one of them. Um, yeah. If you can do that, I think it's really powerful. I think you said it really well. You had a lecture on Toussaint mm-hmm. uh, yeah. at some point before you wrote your second book. Uh, I don't know where it was. Maybe it was a yeah. Stanford or something. Culture and Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Culture and right, Revolution. Yeah. yeah, it's my favorite talk. Uh, where you said, you know, the thing Toussaint did so well was he could put himself in pretty much anyone's shoes and he could then emulate how they're thinking. And that yeah. gave him immense power because then he knew exactly what he needs to do to get them to do whatever he wanted them to do. So he even put himself in, you know, um, the slave driver's mindset. And he understood that, okay, if I want these guys, you know, who I hate, you know, and, you know, they destroyed my life. But if I want them to do the right things for me, this is, these are the buttons I need to push. And that's how he led that whole revolution. Yeah, no, that, that, that's right. A great insight. And, you know, and he was able, even able to do it, you know, with, uh, you know, American diplomats and, um <laughs> you know, the kind of uh, French colonial hierarchy and all these kinds of things. It is really, really remarkable. But I think that's right. You know, he kind of had this dual background like yourself where he grew up a slave. And then, um, you know, because he, you know, became such great friends with his, with the person running the plantation, um, he became kind of the that that guy's valet and went to him with all, to all the meetings and so forth and, you know, mastered multiple cultures in, in, in the same way that you had to, uh, kind of coming from Iran to Sweden to, to Berkeley and then into the into kind of Silicon Valley. So re- really great insights. So let me pause there and just, because um, Mark's been sitting there quietly, I just want to make sure, Mark, do you have any questions for Ali on his background before we get into some of this boss stuff? Yeah, so I, I would love to, so let me ask Ali a very direct question, which is you have personal experience in what you might describe as, or what I might describe as like three very extreme cultures. 
Yep. And so, you know, Iran being obviously extreme in its way. And then Sweden, I would say, is like Sweden is generally considered, at least from the U.S. perspective, kind of, you know, peak Europe um, in the <laughs> sense of like, you know, the Scandinavian model, you know, mm -hmm. is like a really important thing. And then obviously, you know, Sweden is, is you know, has its own startup ecosystem and, you know, you know, you know, very innovative, you know, companies coming out of there and so forth. But like, it's, you know, it's kind of a canonical kind of European country and culture. And then, you know, the, U the U.S. obviously is extreme in many ways. And, you know, and of course, you know, the U.S. has been a, a, a destination for, you know, immigrants from all over the world for a very long time. And, you know, but then in the last like several years, there have been these kind of big questions about, you know, will the U.S. continue to be as welcoming, you know, culturally, you know, to kind of, you know, new, newly arrived people, you know, from different backgrounds and so forth. And, you know, people are, are you know, different people are worried about that from different perspectives. I'd be really curious if, if, if I were, you know, a kid who you knew growing up, you know, in any one of like, you know, dozens of places around the world, like, how would you advise me about how I should think about like whether I should leave where I am and, and then and then where I should go if I want to, you know, kind of be able to follow in the footsteps of somebody like you? Uh, interesting. I mean, it really depends on the person, um, you know, how they're wired. Um, you know, the advantage, I mean, someone like me, the advantage I think I have is I feel like I'm outside the system. Like, I, I don't feel like I'm, you know, Swedish, American, Persian or anything. I just these are just different systems. You you know, you move between them and you analyze them, you know, it's, you know, I don't feel like I, you know, I don't pigeonhole myself into any of these categories. I just observe it. So I would just say they have different pros and cons, these systems. United States is high, high variance uh, country, which means everything is at the extreme. You can find the best universities here. You can find the worst universities here. You can find the, you know, richest person on the planet here. You can find the poorest man on the planet here. You can find the extremes in a way that you can't find in Europe. The variance is much lower, you know, and, you know, so it depends on where you end up. So if your personality is, it's, you know, if your personality is you want to really excel, you want to go far, um, you know, I think obviously, you know, there's the ceiling is much higher here and you can go much further here. Um, the second thing I would say is um, the nature of the nature of kind of it depends on of your background. Like if you're, for instance, an immigrant, or if you're if you're from a different background, uh, the nature of social problems are different here from, say, Europe, in a fundamental way, which I think very few people kind of understand. Um, in the sense that uh, here, you know, there's a lot of issues here too, right? I mean, there there are issues in all societies, and there are lots of problems here that we've seen in the last year. Uh, and, you know, before that, and, you know, there's crazy history right here that the uh, United States has that almost, you know, no other country can even, you know, have those kind of horrors. But uh, when you look at it, it's kind of a country made by a bunch of people that came from other places. So, you know, even when you, you, know, even when you find people that are really racist, they'll tell you, yeah, but I'm a proud, like, fourth generation Polish, <laughs> you know, and you kind of laugh. Like, you know, in Sweden, no one would say that ever, you know. There it's like... I'm through and through Swedish. Like I, you know, my ancestors were here. They created this country. This is my country. This is my country. You know, you're a guest here, you know, and you're not welcome here. Whereas here, it's a little bit like, you know, no, we don't like you because we, you know, and then they stereotype you. You're this way or that way. Whereas I think in Europe, sometimes you can find a different type of racism, which is, no, you're not welcome here because this is not actually your place. This is not your country. You're, you know, my ancestors built this thing with their, you know, with their hand. And they're like, we've been here forever. Which of course is a myth. Like you know, they also there's been so much movement between these places. So I think the acceptance for different is much higher here. You can be very different in this in this society uh, here in the United States. 
again, back to the variance point. Uh, but, you know, things can also go really, really wrong here. And you can end up, you know, getting the short end of the stick in a way that you couldn't get in maybe Sweden. Um, you know, and then, you know, Iran is a completely different matter because, you know, it's not really a first world country. So, you know, their connections matter. And, you know, you can, you know, you really have to be lucky in life. You know, just being smart and just working hard, you know, won't take you really anywhere necessarily, um, which is true for many countries. Like, you know, in first world countries, if you just do really well and if, you know, if you get, you know, you need a little bit of luck in life and so on. But there are opportunities there for you. Of course, there are problems. But, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in many of the third world countries, there's no chance whatsoever, like at all, if you don't have connections or if you're not, you know. Um, so it depends a little bit, I would say. It's a good question, but it's, uh, you know, we probably need the whole clubhouse just for that. Yeah, that is a great question. Go ahead, Mark. No, no, that was great. That was, that was great. But uh, uh, thank you for that. All right. So <laughs> we're going to, you know, this is such a good conversation, but um, since this is boss talk, we're going to take a, a, a left turn and then we're going to talk a little bit about um, some of these uh, questions that, that, that founders have asked us. Um, and this one, um, Ali, you start by answering it and uh, think about the cultural answer, given what we've been talking about. So we just hired our first VP of sales recently. <laughs> Any thoughts on how founders can effectively support and manage their B VP of sales would be helpful insight. Any mis obvious mistakes to avoid? So um, this, this actually turns out to be a cultural question. Yeah, 100%. Uh, assuming the founder is a tech founder or the person who created the product and they come from that side of the house, which is usually the case if the question is formulated that way. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely a tech yeah. founder, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the biggest mistake you can make is you look at this other person, right? The salesperson, who's a very different persona from you. There's a different culture, different background, you know, uh, typically a lot of them come from sports background. They're talking about, you know, baseball, football, how they used to do that. And they're bragging about their records and stuff. And, and, you know, that while you were maybe a coder or someone who was sort of not doing those kind of things, the biggest mistake people make is they say, you know, they'll try to use their own framework of thinking and their own logical way of thinking and the way they are constructed and analyzing how this salesperson thinks. And then there's a clash of cultures. And then usually they arrive at, no, this doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, he said stuff that didn't like, you know, I don't think that was truthful what he said here, or I don't think this that made any sense, or this didn't, this thing that he said didn't logically follow from the other statement and so on. Uh, so I don't think we should hire this person. I'm a no. So then they pass on all these kind of people and then they hire and they say, you know, I finally found a salesperson that's really awesome. I'm going to yeah. show you. And then it's like an engineer type guy, you know, <laughs> who's, right. who's kind of like them or gal and super cerebral you know, maybe even introverted. Uh, but guess what? They'll probably suck at sales. Because yeah. you basically have yourself, yeah. uh, you know, uh, in, a real, in a role where you actually need a different culture to succeed. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's the biggest problem. Yeah, no, that's, I definitely agree. And then, and then the management of that person is also interesting. You know, one, th there's a really interesting thing that I find with engineers trying to hire salespeople is, if you ask an engineer a question, the engineer will always ask himself, okay, what's the answer? So I don't care what it is. Like you ask an engineer any question um, and they will say, okay, well, here's the answer. Salespeople never do that. Yeah. They go, <laughs> why, 
why are you asking me this? Yeah, <laughs> that's what they want to know. They want to find out why, why are you asking me that question? You know, what are you trying to get at? Um, and they're kind of suspicious by nature if they're good. And, you know, in sales, you need that because like you roll an engineer into account and they say, hey, do you have this feature? And the engineer will go, yes or no. Yeah. But the sales guy will go, why is he asking me about that feature? Which competitors have that feature? Who planted that fucking idea in his mind? Like, <laughs> I need to know that before I say anything to this guy, because, you know, he could be out to get me. This I may have just identified an enemy. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're yeah. here to sell, right? And they want to yeah. have the job. So they want to know what's, what's the question behind the question and where are you going with this? And what's the, what are the, the, of the answers I give, what impact will they have on you? Right, uh, right, right. Because I'm here to get a job. Like, so what's the, you know, are you trying to ask this to find out if I can do this and that? Because I definitely can do that, you know? Yeah. And, and, and they'll do that to you in the interview. And this makes CEOs who are engineers really uncomfortable because <laughs> they'll ask them a question. They won't tell them the answer. Phil, we had a Phil got guy. a question back. <laughs> yeah. We had a sales guy and we used to do this stupid thing where we would ask in the early days, the sales leaders, these very cerebral math questions, you know, which <laughs> makes absolutely no sense. So, so, you know, at that time, we're trying to figure out our pricing model and pay as you go was a thing, you know, elastic pricing and all that. So we asked this at a sales candidate, what do yeah. you think about pay as you go? pricing and he mm -hmm. just looked at it uh, at us and said i like when it goes up <laughs> <laughs> it was a, and then one of the, we all laughed like you right and then but then we said okay but what 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 when it goes down he said don't like it then <laughs> you know you know i didn't want to answer the question like he doesn't want to yeah. he doesn't know what and actually he was smart because it was a very uh that question had divided the founders and there was a yeah. right answer and a wrong answer. And he knew it. And he's like, I'm not going to tell you. Like, Because if I say this, who knows? Maybe I, is that the right answer or the wrong answer? So I'm not going to answer that question that way. So I'll just, you know, I'll say, you know, I like when it goes up. I don't like when it goes down. What do you guys think? Yeah, yeah. No, that, definitely, definitely. Um, and then once, once you get them on board, um, what are kind of mistakes that you see? Or like, what are the things that you had to figure out? you know, when you brought on, when you brought on Ron, um, you know, like, cause he was really different than everybody you had in the company at that point. Yeah. I mean, he had been selling really shitty products, uh, yeah. you know, his whole <laughs> life. Right. He was, yeah, selling, hold on. So, yeah, you got to say what he was selling. Cause it's a, well, he was selling FTP, yeah. right. Which is like, <laughs> you know, file transfer protocol from the eighties, which is free by the way. And yeah. he was selling it for millions of dollars uh, to healthcare companies because he was selling like the secure version, <laughs> SFTP, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, the way you yeah. do it is like, you know, how important are your health records to you? Is it okay yeah. if you lose them, if they don't arrive at the other destination, you know? Um, so, uh, which is good. I think, uh, you know, the, the best sellers are the ones that didn't have an amazing product uh, to sell. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, sales leaders have... You know, there are a lot of skill sets they have, and we could talk about a lot of those things. But one of the skills that most great sales leaders have uh, is that they're really good negotiators. Mm -hmm. uh, so they'll be negotiating yeah. with you. So, you know, you got to be prepared for that. Uh, if, if, if they're not doing that, uh, I think there's a, there's a problem. Like, for instance, right. when you're hiring a sales guy, and in the finish line, if they don't make obnoxious uh, demands on equity and salary and comp, that's a big red flag. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. You know, so it started, so with Ron, it started already with that, right? With completely mm -hmm. obnoxious, outrageous demands on, 
you know, compensation, which meant, okay, he's a good sales guy, right? He, he's yeah. he's going to go, he's going to get big deals for us. Uh, but then that continues, right? When you're setting the targets for the year, uh, when you're setting the, you know, um, when you're setting up the plans for the year, um, if you, if you have an amazing salesperson, you're, uh, you know, you're basically negotiating with a person who loves negotiations and that's what he does for a living from, you know, 7 a.m. till, you know, 8, 9 p.m. every night, every day of his life for 40 years. Yeah. Uh, he's been talking to procurement departments, negotiating stuff. Yeah. Um, can you get comfortable doing that? Uh, or do you think it's just bullshit as, a, as an engineer guy and say, you know, I can't deal with this and, you know, let's just go get someone, you know, this other guy seems much more uh, of a straight shooter or, you know, logical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and and what I always say is, you know, you have to learn to manage diversity, and there are different kinds of diversity. And the probably in a, in a kind of enterprise software company, the salesperson is going to be the most diverse person who gets hired off the bat, you know, coming from a really different way. Yeah, culturally, there's a, culturally. I mean, the, the yeah, sales sales yeah. sales in pretty much every company is actually a distinct culture. You know, uh, distinct from the rest of the company, whether you like it or not. You can try to change it, but it actually is distinct. Just start with something as simple as, you know, you try to make everything homogenous in the company. Except compensation for sales is just completely different. Right. right. And start with that, right? That. Uh, yeah, yeah, but it's just different, right? It's already there. You've changed the culture by saying these guys get paid completely differently from everyone else in the company in a radically different way. Who, you know, very little equity and they get huge packages and they might make millions of dollars, but most of it is variable and they have to earn it. Yeah. Yep. 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 And uh, what I always used to say, you know, when engineers would bring that to me, I would say, oh, so you want to be paid on commission? You know, <laughs> yeah, I want to get commission when we make a sale. And I was like, okay. And then when you miss the schedule, I'm going to fire you. Is that cool? <laughs> and that, that always ends that conversation. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it's a long term and short term. Yeah, there's a lot of CEOs that don't want to pay. You know, they don't want to pay commission. And uh, which is crazy in sales because um, I remember I had this conversation with one of my CEOs, and I was like, "Look, I said, tell me this: Do you have any engineers that ever, like, on a weekend, will actually like write some software?" Or do something like that. And he goes, Yeah, I have people like that. I said, Well, I guarantee you, you don't have any salespeople who sell fucking software for fun <laughs> on the weekend. You know, it's not that kind of thing. Exactly. Um, so, so you have to, it has to be competitive. There has to be a president's club. There has to be commissions because it's a prize fight and no prize, exactly. no fight. And yeah. So yeah. And the prize has to be, you know, yeah. I mean, just to make it very clear to founders, you know, if they're listening, the prize every year has to be millions of dollars. So like you better yeah. have, if you're successful, you better have salespeople that are making a million dollars a year, yeah. you know, so that you can hold them up and you can say, this guy made, you know, a million last year. Uh, and, you know, and this guy did too, and you could be him or her. Um, and that's really important, I think, uh, for, for really competitive yeah. sales cultures. Yeah, because that, that's why you do it. I mean, I think that it is, it's the, the thrill of the hunt and the, you know, the size of the kill. Yeah. And without that, but, you know, it's it's not fun at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there you yeah. go. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So um, follow-up question was, we're looking to hire our first marketing leader. 
Um, we're a B2B API SaaS company. What advice do you have on the profile we should be seeking? What's the when's the right time? Yeah. So, um, so you're a B2B and then company. and then there's a, a follow up question to that, which is: Should you hire a marketing leader or a sales leader first? Pros and cons. Ah, that that's a, that's a good one, and I'm curious what you think. Uh, but yeah. for sure, marketing and sales, especially in a B2B company, go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, so if you already have a sales leader, it's really, really important that that person gets along with whoever you're going to hire in marketing. Uh, in some sense, sales is the customer in many ways for marketing. So marketing mm-hmm. generates the leads and delivers yeah. those leads to their customer, which is sales. Sales yeah. then runs with it. And if sales says these these leads are crappy, then mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Like, you know, uh, or yeah. if they say, hey, this message you gave me is useless. Like, I'm not going to use it. I'm going to come up with my own. Then why do you have mm-hmm. a marketing department? Uh, and that happens. It's very common. Uh, yeah. So really making sure that those two departments work really well together, I think is really, really crucial. Uh, so I would ha- I would yeah. make the So if you already have a sales guy, make sure that he or she is a really integral part of that search process when you're getting the marketing leader. Yeah, right. Because if they hate each other, then you're breaking up that fight all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it has to match. So different companies have different go-to-market motions. You know, mm-hmm. a company like Tableau, was selling desktop licenses for $2,000. Uh, you know, a company like uh, Palantir, I suspect mm-hmm. is selling contracts that are, you know, uh, always at least seven figures and maybe eight figures, right? Um, yeah. So the kind of leads you need and the kind of marketing you need is different for these different ones. So make sure that also the marketing leader you're getting uh, fits what you have on the sales side. These two have to really gel well together, these two departments. Uh, but yeah. it also depends on your, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that you know, that's a, a really good point in that, you know, when you hire an executive, you're paying a lot of money in equity and you're yeah. buying knowledge. And so if you hire, you bring in a head of marketing and you're a B2B API SaaS company and that head of marketing is from whatever Palantir, then you've screwed up because you need somebody who's from a company like yours, because you're buying that. You, you just paid them for knowledge they don't have. Yeah. And that, you know, that that's insane. Cause what you're really doing with these executives is you're accelerating the entire company's time to learn how to go to market. Um, because you could just take your junior people if you're going to go with zero knowledge. Um, and this is a mistake people make. They're like, well, do they really have to come from the domain? Yes, they really have to come yeah, from the domain. Do they really have to know the customers that I'm selling to? Yes, they really have to know the customers that you're selling to because that's what you're buying. It's worse, actually, if you, it's, yeah. it's, you're almost better off getting someone that's not, you know, an expert mm-hmm. like that because they're now going to go ahead and spin up a demand machine and a whole like marketing machine. You're going to hire a whole bunch of people that are specialized in doing that thing. Yeah. And it turns out that's not even what you need. Right. Uh, right. They're going to run their own playbook. Yeah. yeah. So that's, it's, it's really crucial. The other mistake a lot of companies do, and I think Databricks did in the early days, which is you sit down and say, okay, but what kind of go-to-market would I want to, who would I, who would I want to be? Oh, I'd like to have yeah. uh, you know million dollar deals, or I'd like to have $10,000 deals. So at Databricks, we made the mistake early on where we said, oh, we don't even want to have salespeople. It's better if it's like super automated and people just swipe a credit card and it just grows like that. That's the one we pick as if it's like a choice you can just make. Yeah, from a menu. Sales uh, organization. Yeah. As opposed to, like a buffet. I've got this product, I'm selling it to that customer. 
what kind of channel do I need to connect the two? It it starts with, oh, I want this kind of channel. <laughs> yeah, in Databricks case, yeah. we take massive amounts of data and do machine learning on it. And if we improve by 1% some metric, that could mean $100 million of improvements for some company. But yeah. that means we need to work with companies that have lots of data and where 1% improvement matters a lot to them. That right. happens to be big enterprises. And you know the channel you need to talk to those are enterprise sales. And that's a different game than if you're selling startups or you know yeah. Excel users uh, you know, who just want to plot something, which might be the Tableau user. Yeah, no, it's amazing how many CEOs will make that mistake. Um, and it always comes in the form of, well, you know, I don't want to hire a Rolex wearing salesperson or something like this. And it's like, well, like, because you don't like Rolexes? I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like if you were going like, okay, I'm taking a trip. Um, to Australia, and I'd like to get there on a motorcycle. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> you can't get to Australia on a motorcycle. <laughs> it's not, that's not what determines the vehicle, what you want to fucking ride. But I want to have really, yeah. really low CAC, customer acquisition costs. That's what I'm going to go with. Yeah, yeah who wouldn't? Uh, but maybe that doesn't get the job done for the product you have and for the market you're trying to reach. Yeah. Okay. So this next question is kind of gets at what you were saying, which is should marketing and sales report to the sales leader or to the marketing leader or to the CRO or to the CEO, how to avoid finger pointing between the marketing leader and the sales leader if both report to the CEO. Um, and then Mark also get ready because I know you have opinions on this one too, but let's start with Ali. Yeah, well, I don't think one size fits all. And like, you know, here's exactly, I have the canonical org chart. I'll send it afterwards and everybody just run their company based on that org chart I send down. So it, it kind of depends. Also, titles can mean anything in any company, especially, you know, I find it funny. You find these tiny startups with 10 people and they have like a CRO and a COO mm -hmm. and, you know, all kinds of fancy C-level titles and EVPs. Uh, but uh, which actually it's, it's okay. It's not under the world if they do that, though. I don't, I don't think it's a good idea. Um, I, I think uh, what's, one thing just that's weird in the question is, oh, you know, we can avoid this finger pointing if we just like, you know, if we just put it all under the carpet, this like, you know, make the problem <laughs> go away. Yeah, awesome. Great job. No, actually, the finger pointing can be good. I actually yeah. think one of the reasons it's good if it reports to the CEO is that you get to see these conflicts and they can actually figure out how you want to configure your company because you're figuring stuff out. It's mm -hmm. a startup. It's yeah. not a set in stone, gigantic corporation. So uh, I actually always preferred not having a COO or someone between me and all these different functions. I had them always mm -hmm. reporting to me because then I would actually find out what's going on. Like, you know, the salesperson would say, hey, these leads are not great. And I would say, why not? And they could, I could yeah. dig into it. And then the marketing leader would say, yeah, but he says the leads are not great, but actually they're not actually spending their time on the leads because they're actually focusing on this other thing, which makes them more money right now and so on. And that, that helps you configure it. Now, maybe you have an amazing leader that can do that instead of you and you suck at this, all this stuff that we talked about. Yeah, then maybe it makes sense to make it all, you know, just go to one person that does it for you. But that's a lot of power in someone's hands. And if, if you just started your company um, and you get one of these COO, CRO that owns all of go-to-market, that's a lot of trust in one person. If they're that amazing, that's great if you found that person. Uh, yeah. But more often than not... They probably don't understand your product as well, and they kind of don't know what kind of company you're creating. They might just run with an existing playbook. So I'm not a fan of doing it that way. Yeah, well, and it's interesting because the other thing that that ignores is marketing 
is also connected to engineering. Yeah. Um, and so there are going to be conflicts and communication breaks downs there. And then you've made that one actually harder to uh, unravel. And the good thing about sales and marketing is they tend to be both extroverted and loud. So they're going to really point fingers. Whereas once you get into engineering, it could just be like a silent war, um, yeah. which is extremely destructive. So that's a, that's a really good point. Let me bring in Mark. Mark, you have some thoughts on whether sales should report to marketing or marketing should report to sales or to the CEO and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, may, may, you guys may have covered this. Um, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, 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 uh, I'm multitasking a little bit with a five-year-old. <laughs> five, five so. uh, no worries. I'm, I'm tuning in and out a little bit. I, I would say, look, yeah. like the other thing is, did you guys talk about air war, ground war? No, nah, no, we didn't talk about that. Yeah. So that's the other thing that's like really important to, to, uh, to think about here. Um, is basically the, the the two functions basically operate on very different clock cycles, um, yeah, mm -hmm. and so sales is typically you know executing against um, you know quarterly uh, you know quarterly targets and and then you know ultimately annual targets and so forth and, and marketing has some of those but like marketing generally is playing a longer game um, and they're trying to like you know do kind of long term brand development and corporate communications and then even you know lead gen like sometimes lead gen plugs straight into sales but you know they're kind of doing a lot of other stuff that maybe is a little bit more amorphous or high level around long term demand creation and so. You know the, the metaphor that gets used a lot is, is you know marketing is air war and sales is ground war and yeah, you know it's yeah. a little bit like the army and the air force which is like the air force like doesn't you know if you talk to like air force officers like they may say something like i don't know why those guys are always running around you know with their boots in the ground getting their you know getting their getting their feet wet <laughs> why can't we just bomb from the air and the army guys are like well you know these air force guys they're up and they're literally up in the clouds and they, they like actually don't know what's going on and they're they're not at like point of contact with the enemy and there's a similar dynamic that can develop between marketing and sales where the marketing people think the sales people are kind of the grunts and the sales people think the marketing people are just like out to lunch. Um, yeah. And so like, it's a real cultural difference. Um, and by the way, like you often see it all in their private lives. You, you see the difference mm -hmm. also. They, you know, they, the sales people are like having weekend barbecues and like, you know, the, the marketing people are going to like, you know, art, you know, art fairs, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. pretty, pretty different things. And so, you know, they don't, they do naturally go together in the sense of there's a direct connection, which is they're all about go to market, but they also don't go together in these really important ways. And, and so, and, and so I guess I would say like typically, typically in a company and see what you guys think of this. I think if marketing reports to sales, typically you have very weak marketing. Mm -hmm. um, if um, sales reports to marketing, typically you have no revenue. <laughs> um, and then if they don't, you know, if, if they're, if they're peers, they, they generally like argue a lot. And I, I think those might be like the three choices. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I, I think that's right. Um, and look, it, the other thing um, that Ali brought up that I think is something that CEOs have to deal with is, look, within a function, things always run well if you have a reasonably good leader on the function, you know, because they meet together, they've got aligned goals and objectives and so forth. And so, you know, that generally isn't where the CEO has to be the chief executive. It's usually cross-functionally um, where things break down and need to be defined and ties need to be broken and conflicts need to be resolved because that's where there's mismatches in the company um, that are going to prevent it from succeeding. And so, you know, it's really hard to do that if there are layers between you and the people who actually own those functions. Yeah. Yeah, they'll mask it at every level. They'll do yeah. their pre-meetings and they get on the same page and, you know, and <laughs> yeah. then you get, you know, a very sort of 
uh, sort of fake sort of picture of like everything is great here and there's no problems and we're not, we're aligned. Um, yeah. So I I think as a CEO, it's actually good to surface that finger pointing. Now it can get toxic and you can make it really bad culturally. That's a separate problem. But but at least you want to know exactly uh, what are the issues that are going on so that you can actually figure out how you want to configure it for your for your strategy long term. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And I, and I agree with Mark's uh, point of view. If you make, uh, you know, if it's very sales, anything that's very sales oriented, so if you put marketing under sales and it's really sales driven, it's going to end up being very short term. So your sales leader will look at all the stuff marketing is doing and they're going to only fund the stuff that is really guaranteed ROI in the short term. You know, so it ends up yeah. being like lead gen and programs and events and those kind of things that immediately turn into revenue. And they're right. not going to invest in the long-term branding stuff that you need and the thought leadership and the things that kind of over time actually is more important uh, that you need to do. They're not, they're going to starve product marketing, uh, you know, that if it sits in the marketing and so on. Um, right. Yeah. 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 And the brand thing is so underestimated by enterprise CEOs because, you know, they don't realize, and you can actually hear it from salespeople, interestingly, like, you know, we walk in the door and nobody knows who we are. So every meeting is we've got to explain who we are. And you think about what that does to your sales cycle because you have no brand. Um, and yet you're still not willing to invest in the brand. And it's it's really, uh, it's a super common thing in enterprise uh, CEOs and it's a it's definitely a big deficit. Yeah, uh, by the way, Databricks yeah. would not be where it is today if it wasn't for, when we started, the Spark technology was very well known. Yeah. And we would go, we were so, you know, the founders were so pissed off always because the sales guys would go to every account and instead of explaining what we do, they would just say, do you know Spark? <laughs> yeah, I know it. We yeah. created it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're those guys. Okay, now you know who we are. And they would just lean on that. And so we created it. We know it better than anyone else. You should buy our software. And we would, you know, it would infuriate us because it would be like, no, understand, pitch it. But no, they were doing the right thing, right? They were going on that brand value. And they were getting yeah. the foot in the door that way. And it opened up so many doors that otherwise would have been completely shut. And that's how they got all those leads. So it's like, hey, this part thing, do you have a strategy for it? Yeah, you do. Okay, we created it. I created it. You know, it's me, me, me. Like, let me come in. Like, you know, I'm one of the creators of it. Um, so yeah, that, that was actually brand awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it, right. It actually saved you because... Uh, Originally, marketing didn't work that well at Databricks, I'll just say, <laughs> without giving any blame. Um, so so the, next, the next question is, uh, how do we know when we need HR slash people roles? I mean, very early on, the founders are doing HR all the time. They maybe don't think of it as HR, but you're doing HR kind of from, you know, from, the, from, from being 10 people. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. Well, I, I'd say there's a couple of things that um, make it really critical. Uh, so, yeah, you are. I mean, there's certain like basic thing, you know, things you might just regard as personnel, which is like, okay, you know, what's the salary scale? You know, hiring uh, people, all that kind of thing. But then you get into, you know, it goes critical in a couple of places. One is you know, once you get like 50 people, I think the law is you have to have sexual harassment training. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the way you think about that. And this gets into the other thing. And that's also when you start to have managers. Um, mm -hmm. And if you have managers who have not been trained 
in sexual harassment, it's basically the equivalent of having accountants who aren't trained in accounting because it's a legal apparatus that if they don't know, it's going to cause huge problems for the company because it's not like the law, the law is well written, but it's not, you know, it's like accounting law. There are nuances to it that you're not just, not everybody's going to intuit, particularly when they come from all different cultures and all different kind of walks of life where these rules vary. Um, And so you have to know the rules of the land. And so that like, it's absolutely critical that like you have real HR at that point. And I've seen companies get into trouble on this all the time. And a lot of it is, you know, managers like just don't know what they're doing. But then it becomes broader than that in that if you've got managers managing people, how do you know? You have an idea, hopefully, if you're a CEO, you start to have an opinion on, okay, what is it like to work at Databricks? How do I, what kind of people do I want? What do I want their experience to be like? What do I want their career paths to be like? How do I want them to be treated? All these kinds of things, which result in a bunch of management practices from you know, how you interview to like whether you have one-on-ones to how you conduct a meeting and all this stuff. And how do you know if you're getting that? Like, how do you know as CEO, you're so busy, you know, building the executive team, running the company, figuring out the strategy, talking to customers, all this stuff. You don't know how your managers are doing. So without HR, you know, really good HR that can help inform you on, yeah, Ali, you're getting exactly what you want out of these managers, but not that manager, then you don't have any quality control at all. And your company is not going to be a place that you even want to work in. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, HR for is, you know, the people organization. It's for all of your employees. Mm-hmm. They're they're there for all of the employees. That's bullshit. HR yeah, that's is not bullshit. there for all the employees. You know, <laughs> no. the people in your organization, they report to their bosses. And the bosses decide if they're, you know, happy or unhappy or all that kind of stuff. They don't report to yeah. HR. Okay. So HR is really there uh, outside of recruiting to make sure that those leaders are doing their job and that they're good and they're getting the training they need. And that's really it. It's like your, it's the tool you have as a CEO to make sure that all your leaders are great, uh, yeah. and that they're doing the right thing. Not that all the employees, all the, each employee reports to some boss, reports to some boss, and those are the people that have the power. Uh, so you're, that's, that's really actually, that's, that's a really great point. Yeah, and, 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 it, and it's bad when like employees misinterpret that because then you get into this weird politics with HR, right? Where the employees are, trying to use HR against the manager, yeah, you know, in some weird way. Uh, like there's certain things like there's a, if you've been abused, then of course you would go to HR and, you know, whistleblow and that kind of thing. But, you know, you don't want it to be, oh, he gave me a bad review. Can you talk to him? <laughs> like, that's not the job of HR. <laughs> it's yeah. your job yeah. to get a good review. Yeah. I mean, you're right. There's also tactical reasons to get HR and get, you know, legal and security team. This is a tactical reason, but but to, you know, to protect your ass, uh, you know, you want to do the exit interviews and, you know, and talk to people, you know, you'll, you probably don't know how to do that. Right. And, you know, you're going to end up on glass door and people are going to say that, you know, the CEO said some really outrageous things to me when I was about to, you know, leave, um, you know, why not have a professional do that? Who knows how to do that for a living? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. You know, and look, the, the CEO job is emotional. Um, and you know, there's certain, you you can't put yourself in a situation where you feel like somebody betrayed you or this and that, and you're having a conversation that's going to make it a thousand times worse. So it's a, it's really good point. 
Um, start early. Start early. Get a Charlie yeah. early. And actually, I will say this: most HR leaders aren't that great. So it's actually a very difficult search. So it's actually going to take you very, very long time uh, to find yes. someone as awesome as Amy that I have at Databricks. Yeah, no, Amy is great. And but you know, the, the one of the things that makes her great is like the real head of HR at Databricks is is Zali. And you know, Amy ends up being the person who makes you what you all you can be as head of HR. Because like the most important thing in any tech company for sure is the talent. And so if the CEO doesn't have a very, very strong point of view on how that talent is brought in, assessed, managed, promoted, you know, moved along in their career, which is the HR life cycle, then no head of HR is going to save you. That's yeah. not a that's not a possible thing. I think it's it's not it's not about Ali. I think every startup yeah. founder and, and CEO that should be their primary job to make sure that uh, you're hiring the right people and you have very opinionated way of how you want to hire and who you want to get in because those are those are the people that are going to run your company. You can come up with whatever strategy you want, but if you hire the wrong people, you're not going to go where you want it, and they're not going to implement your strategy because you got the wrong people in the boat. So, uh, so of course that should come from the CEO. The other one is culture. A lot of people are like you know once you get ahead of HR. You know, you can delegate culture to them and they can figure out, they can do surveys and come up with what is our culture? Yeah, you know, this, yeah. is, this is my thing. Like, you know, oh, we should do a survey of what the employees think. What should our culture be? What is it? Yeah. Uh, no, you know, that's not how it works. Culture is actually a strategic weapon. The CEO should decide it. Absolutely. And then it should be implemented. Yeah. Yeah. No, like your culture is your number one. If you if done right, it should be your number one strategic competitive advantage. Um, it yeah. should be the reason people buy from you, even when your product might be behind, because they know because of your culture, they're going to get what they want out of the company over time. And it's, uh, you know, it, it, ha it has to be designed. I, I totally agree. So we are yeah, actually, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, a great example of that is that it's an absolutely a strategic weapon is look at Amazon. Amazon yeah. has a culture principle called frugality. And that means, you know, everybody's going to, nobody's going to splurge in that company ever. And they're going to be very careful with how to spend their money. And that ensures, that fits their whole strategy of going to be the low cost option. It's going to be super cheap. And your margin is my opportunity. And I'm going to basically outcompete everyone else on price. Right. And, and you know who totally doesn't have that cultural value? Apple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they, yeah. they've got a $5 billion, like, campus um, and they've got doorknobs that probably cost more than anything at Amazon. And, you know, that, that, but that goes with their strategy. They're building premium, beautiful products that you're going to, are not only going to be fun for you to use, but give you status. And they're not cheap. And they're not cheap. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, they'll never make a product as cheap as Amazon and Amazon will never make a product as beautiful as Apple. And uh, that's just fine. But they're different cultures for different strategies. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Okay, well, that that's the end of our time on Boss Talk. We're right at 6 p.m. And we always like to save something for next week. So thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you, Ali, for telling us an amazing story and um, articulating the value of which I think every CEO has to know is like, how do you, how do you deal across culturally? How do you, how do you be multi, multicultural lingual? <laughs> or I don't yeah. know what a word for that is, but you have to be multicultural to do that job. And um, you did a great job of articulating why that's true. So thanks, thanks everyone. Man. Thanks for all the great questions again. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Thanks everyone. Thanks, Mark.
Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Zoe. Yep. Good night.